I am in admiration of people who write novels. It must be so difficult to get into the head of the character and behave like them without showing our unconscious biases or stereotyping them. If you are a South Asian 40-year-old, are you able to think like a 70-year-old white English woman and give her an authentic, honest voice? Would you be accused of being racist? This is Story Seldom Told. I am Smitha Tharoor. I'd like to introduce Aisha Malik. Aisha is the author of the Sophia Khan novels, This Green and Pleasant Land, and most recently, The Movement. In fact, I've read The Movement. Aisha was also the winner of the Diversity Book Awards 2020. Plus, she teaches creative writing for the Academy's Faber as well as Curtis Brown. Aisha lives in London, and I'm not sure where she's got time to do anything else between writing books and teaching creative writing and so on, but I'm sure that Aisha has many stories to share with us around unconscious bias. So thank you so very much for joining me today, Aisha. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, we're talking unconscious bias, as you know, um, and I'm just curious to know what you understand by that before we even think about what your stories sound like and look like. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question because um, I was thinking about this uh, before um, I came to speak to you and what is my understanding. I didn't want to search the, I didn't want to search for the Oxford dictionary definition, you know, more, more about my own perception of it. And I guess for me, it's, um, it's about, it's about historical environmental factors that have sort of um, been absorbed by one's own psyche and manifests in biases in real life, which you don't, which you don't realize you're doing um, based on what you perceive a person or a situation to be because of your own personal experiences. That's rather a long-winded No, 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 it's not. It's not. Because but I'm going to pick on one word that you said, which was yeah. historical. So are you saying historical in terms of history or are you talking about yes. historical yeah. in terms of your personal history? I think both actually personal history because you know we're products of the environment in which we've been nurtured and mm. um and history as well I guess now that you bring it up because because we're taught history from a certain lens and so we adopt those ideologies and how do those ideologies then play out in day-to-day -day living? Can and you ex can you expand on what that means? Just for um, all of us to understand that. Okay, for example, um, oh gosh, I'm going to have to think of something, just of something that we're taught in school, for example. Okay, so we're taught about the Second World War in school um, and um, the way that evolved and unfolded. And so um, I guess when we have conversations about the Second World War, we look at it from a very, we look at it from a spe specific lens. And so, um, and so that sort of history colours our lens, but also then our personal experiences and current contemporary conversation plays a part in colouring our lens as well. That makes so much sense. Actually, coincidentally, not Second, but First World War film, All Quiet on the Western Front, I happened to see it yesterday. Oh. But of course, uh, if, you, if you haven't read the book or seen the film, um, it's very much the story of World War I from the German perspective. Oh. And whatever you would have studied in school growing up in England, 
yeah. would have been obviously from the British perspective where the Germans are the bad guys. Yeah. Yeah. And and it just, yeah. So I, I completely, completely understand what you're saying because it was so coincidental and that's still very much in my head, the idea mm. of the lens that we are brought to understand and believe is the right lens. That's what you're saying. I always had, I always used to get my back up in school when they used to talk about um, communism and the Cold War in America specifically. And I always thought, well, what's so bad about communism? What's so bad about Marxism? And um, it's just interesting that they're, you know, to learn about a certain way that uh, the nation, specifically the USA, um, saw communism and how um, people were brainwashed really and in the same way that uh, people in communist countries are brainwashed but i i saw there was this disparity in the way um a certain culture was allowed to have this opinion and another culture was not not allowed to have the same opinion if that makes sense entirely entirely and the idea of being brainwashed and uh, um no i mean you're making so much sense aisha because the idea of being brainwashed and the idea of us not questioning that's what you're saying, aren't you? We Absolutely. don't question the narrative that's put around us. This is bad. That is good. I'm being very simplistic in my language. Uh, and then we don't, we're not able to see it any differently. And no. you were questioning that. Yeah, but I think, I think we lack perhaps, um, I mean, I, I don't know. When I was growing up in school, um, I don't know if critical analysis was really pushed. And so I had a very personal reaction to certain things um, that were just part of my nature, I guess, to sort of think, well, actually, why, why is this a bad thing? You know, why are we seeing it from this perspective? But I don't think that um, sort of thinking is necessarily nourished um, in our society. And of course, then media comes into play and, and, um, and I think we're all in a situation where we are being taught to think a certain way and it's very difficult to sort of step away from that and have one's objectivity hmm. so perhaps you can you can kind of tell us a story Aisha for us to to understand what you're saying because there's a lot in what you've just said yeah and I'm I, sure a story will reflect that better I think um it's a very personal story um about when I first started writing actually and um and both, I have I have two stories and they're both related to the writing. Uh, one of them is, so when I began to write my first novel, I, um, I started a sort of literary fiction, writing a literary fiction book. And, um, and I couldn't get past writing that sort of 18,000 words. And it took me three years to write 18,000 words, which is a very long time. Um, and I sort of had ideas about you know, it being a literary masterpiece. And I can tell you now, Smitha, it was not, it was quite shit. <laughs> um, um, I think one of the things I now look back on is why was I doing that? And I wonder whether it was because I was a brown woman writing in a space that was predominantly white. And what I saw of brown writers out there was mostly literary fiction. And I think I had kind of, without realizing stopped myself from actually exploring the voice that came naturally to me um, in order to fit into this kind of mold. And then, you know, I, I um, dumped 
the literary fiction and I ended up writing Sophia Khan is not obliged which is essentially a rom-com in in my kind of own voice and a, a more of a mass market book than it is literary fiction and I think that was probably one of the most um kind of significant um aha moments if you like I had in life where I realized actually I don't why why do I think I have to write this way in order to be published in order to have a voice as a as a female woman of color and there are quite a few Sophia Khan novels is that correct there are half yeah, a dozen are, or something no no no. there are two Sophia Khan novels okay there is um one uh, short uh, quick reads I wrote as well so there are three in total there are three there are three yeah. and then Sophia Khan and of course I, mean, I want to say I want to state the obvious you're talking about a rom-com of somebody by her surname I can tell who is a Muslim woman yes a Muslim hijabi woman aha yes so that, so I mean but that's so interesting in itself because you're quite deliberately challenging the status quo aren't you uh, yeah oh 100% because I was so, I was and am so bored of um of watching stuff on TV and reading books in which um you know Muslim women are either oppressed or um there are honor honor killings or they're submissive or they're you know liberated um quote unquote liberated by um by the Western world and abandoned their headscarf, abandoned their beliefs. And I was just tired of all that. And I was also tired of all the seriousness. You know, I wanted to write a comedy. I wanted to write something with depth, but also with with humor, because I think that comedy is um is an excellent vehicle through which you can kind of bridge communicate bridge misunderstandings um no one wants to be lectured to in a book um and I felt that that was a good way of just showing a normal hijabi's life living in London without having to be so worthy and serious about it you know it's not an issues book and I didn't want it to be an issues book even though but, but I you know I, I we, because of the fact that we're talking about stories of unconscious bias I'm thinking about Going back to, to when you first said, you know, that you had these aspirations. And of course, I understand that that the reason, you know, your, your instinct, your unconscious was that you looked around you and you, you know, you can name many very well-known literary writers um, who are brown. Salman Rushdie, for example, most most recently was injured, sadly, or, or Amitabha Ghosh or many other people. Yeah. Um, and so you felt that was the way to do it. But then my question to you in terms of Actually waking up and realizing that's not what I am. Was there an aha moment? Um, that's not what I am in terms of a literary writer. Yes, yeah. And so okay. you started again. It was. So why, what, what gave you that resolve and that understanding about yourself? It was, I think it was time and distance and not being able to push past that sort of um, word count and realizing that actually your voice is is unique to you and you can't try to imitate what's around you you know when you try to imitate or push yourself to be something other than what you are you're sort of setting yourself up for a bit of failure aren't you I mean failure in the sense that I, I learned from it and it you know um we we learn from um our failure so it was a positive thing in the end but um yeah it was more about embracing the voice I had 
Um, but you know that had its that had its own pitfalls as well because kind of moving on when I wrote Sophia Khan, I wrote it very much from a sort of place of personal experience and also it's it's fiction, but there were a lot of my own personal experiences and in, in that sense you could call it authentic, although I don't know if um, anything is truly authentic to everyone. Authenticity is merely your own, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when I when the book was published, I got positive, really positive reactions most of the time. But I did get some people commenting on the fact that I painted South Asian men in a really bad manner. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I got a lot of criticism for that. And I was like, oh, actually, I think my own sort of dating experiences really informed unconsciously the way I then depicted South Asian men in my book. Yeah, it was your experience, right? It was your reality. It was. It and was. it could be somebody else who thinks South Asian men are the, you know, the cat's whiskers or the knees <laughs> bees or whatever the phrase is. But, <laughs> but clearly you did not. So Clearly I, I didn't. But, you know, it... it, it it raises some interesting questions about the sort of obligations um, upon the writer to do justice to um, to characters and to the society they're in. And for me, I, I, you know, I really took that on board because if you as a writer are letting all your personal experiences sort of mar the way in which you approach your writing, that can that can end up being a bit of a dangerous thing, I think. Well, there's another way of looking at it, um, which perhaps is not what you meant to say, but it's what I'm I'm understanding, which is how honest can we be as writers? Because are we allowed to this is your honesty, this is your yeah. experience. Yeah. So if you are not, I mean, we know it's fiction. So you fictionalize. I mean, we all, all over the world, people are hearing this interview, uh, would have heard of the television series called The Crown, which is about the royal family. Now, at the beginning of every season, they say it is not true. It is Mm -hmm. fictionalized. Mm -hmm. But yet we all end seeing whichever, whatever you've seen, Mm -hmm. um, having firm beliefs of how the queen or the king or the whoever it is that's shown in the crown, mm. uh, you know, have conversations or behave. Mm. So equally, when we're talking about you writing a story, which was, to be fair to you, your experience, yeah. and perhaps, and I'm putting words in, my, in your mouth, you don't have to agree yeah. with me, you've not had amazingly positive experiences with South Asian men. Perhaps there are many women around the world who will wag their finger at you and say, excuse me, you're wrong. They're the best thing. And I like them a lot. But equally, there'll be many people who agree with you. Yeah. So, and, and it's a fiction. Hang on a minute. Yeah, go why on. Can't, why can't you write what you want to write? This is, and you know, this is a really interesting point you're making because in many ways, you're not wrong. But I think what's... Um, I think what it is, is about perpetuating certain stereotypes that might fall in line with one's, and in this um, instance, my experience of things. But I've also had, you know, I've also met nice South Asian men. They've not all been dogs, right? Don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Good thing you and I are both South Asian talking to each other. We're in a safe place. 
Yeah, you know, I, I've met, look, I've met many South Asian men that actually are lovely and, um, and great and inspiring even. And so I think it's more about perpetuating these stereotypes with which in a sort of um, dominantly um, white culture can be can be tr- problematic. That's fair. I get that. I get that. Yeah, no, I understand that. Um, you want to kind of at least try and and not perpetuate stereotypes in any community uh, and especially if it's your own. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And like you say, in any community, which is why it's so important to really dig deep into your unconscious bias as a writer, because I'm not only now writing about brown people, you know, I have um, um, white characters, I have black characters, and it really forces me to think twice about how I'm writing people from these various communities because I have to I have to do the characters justice and whilst they are in a, a kind of um uh you know their their background their ethnicity their religious beliefs their sexuality will all inform part of who they are I can't rely on stereotypes can I because that of any kind yeah you're so right because kind. but I mean that's the beauty of being a writer because uh, it's about making them whole Uh, and showing them with different aspects and personalities and different nuances in that human being, Uh, whether white, black, Muslim, South Asian, whatever it might be. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, and that's something that I have to be really conscious of when when I'm writing, especially when I'm writing about um, communities outside the South Asian. um, No, I, I understand that. You were saying that you have another story that's kind of connected to this. What would that be? Oh, um, so no, so that was the um, that was the the me writing about brown men being awful in so far. <laughs> right, <laughs> but but you know, but I I, I, I have read the movement, Aisha, and I'm uh, for those of you who have not read it, I would certainly suggest that you do, because I found it, and I don't want to give away the story, but very simply put. It is about the idea, and you it's your book, your novel, Aisha, so you're more than welcome to correct me, but it's my take on it. Yeah. Um, it's the idea of how human beings need to understand themselves and appreciate who they are rather than constantly playing the game, in inverted commas, and fitting into the expectations of society. Mm. And therefore, one character starts the story, starts the movement of taking a vow of silence. Yes. yes. So what's that about? Um, what so kind of unconscious biases do you have or did you have that motivated you to write a book like that? Yeah, it's um, so the she takes a vow of silence and then this idea catches fire and uh, people around the world start going um, silent until the world is split into two factions of verbals and non-verbals and because of this social economic structures begin to crumble and really I had I just admit that I just had a lot of questions about the culture of noise we live in and I was also a bit fed up of people just constantly having opinions which to me there was the, there was something something jarring about the way um, people were jumping on or do jump on bandwagons and 
um, you know, and offer their opinion on absolutely everything and have a take and it's all black and white. And I just, I felt like all this noise is, you can't, you almost can't hear yourself think, which is why the idea of silence came about. And I wanted to really interrogate this notion, especially for women, for whom, you know, historically speaking, having a voice and even now um, having a voice is so important, but also the idea of having a choice in that. And I feel that um, often we're sort of cajoled into saying what we think when our own opinions aren't even yet fully formed. That's a very good point. I should have added that because I saw that very much. I saw this book as a feminist book. I'm not saying that men shouldn't read it. I think men and women should read it. Uh, but that the idea of the power of the woman yeah, uh, and to take our own power. Yeah. Uh, and I absolutely felt that too. And I should have added that when I was, I was talking about it. Um, but, but may I ask, and, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but do you have a story that maybe that felt that you felt that perhaps you were muzzled when you were little? I don't know. Is it that simple? What made you want to write a book like this? So that's a good question and perhaps it's it's vaster in scope than than I can really talk about right now but I think it's um I've always enjoyed silence um but in in many ways but I've also witnessed it in negative ways um and um the impetus for me really was just honestly just wish. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Mm, go for it. I just wished everyone would shut the fuck up because I feel mm. tired of all the noise. And so I decided to write this story about a woman who decides to take her own advice and she just shuts the fuck up. Um, but it's also a journey of self-understanding for her and really trying to understand why she's chosen silence when she has quite a fettered history um, and coming to terms with who she is. And she she's only able to really do that once she's allowed that space to, to be alone and to reflect. And I think one of the things about unconscious bias, and please correct me if I'm wrong because you are after all the expert, but I wonder whether we suffer from these more because we don't actually have a chance to self-reflect mm-hmm. without a question Aisha yeah. without a question because the whole power of, of of unconscious biases or challenging our unconscious biases is for us to stop think acknowledge but if we don't stop where have we got time to think and acknowledge this is and this is precisely the problem that I was sort of finding with the the world we're living in which is part of the reason I started I I wanted to write the book was to really explore this idea of pausing and self-reflecting and thinking about who who we are who we want to be and um, how on earth we're meant to do this when we're constantly in this sort of um mad living this mad life where we're not even given the opportunity to stop and think and you and I have said previously about um talked previously about the fact that you know where does the time go where does the time go um and where do we find the time to carve out a space where we can think about our own actions and I also think we live in quite an accusatory world 
you said this to me, I was offended, I said this to you, you were offended, I'm right, you're wrong. And, and that's all part of unconscious bias as well, isn't it, Aisha? Uh, because we come with our own stories and then I say something and I don't mean to to offend you, whoever the you is. But then that person has got their stories and then they react. And there's no stopping thinking, sharing open, honest conversation or reflecting. Yeah, and this is, um, this is exactly, and uh, you know, we all talk about kindness and compassion, but I just don't, I'm just not seeing very much of it. Um, and what I, I kind of witness feels like performative compassion and performative kindness, and also kindness and compassion that's only for the people who who, who think the way I think. Ah, um, that's a very important point that you've put up here. The idea of how we all stay in our own little silos or our own little um groups or communities or whatever the phrase is mm. where everyone pats each other on the back mm. and what we believe is reinforced yeah and absolutely. so and how do we break that i mean very simply put i read the newspaper i'm still old-fashioned enough to get a daily paper every day but i get the same paper seven days a week yeah. and it matches my ideas of good and bad or politics or mm. how i want the world to live yeah. now Clearly, if I want to challenge um, my my thoughts rather than reinforce how I think, I should be buying six different types of newspapers, one every day. So I get different types of news yeah. that is chucked into, into my head and makes me think differently. But yeah. I, to be safe, all I keep doing is same old, same old and, and perpetuating what I already know. But it's also because, you know, I think you and I have quite similar values in terms of... Um, our social and political beliefs, but also just the idea of trying to understand, for example, an extreme right-wing person is actually quite depressing. You know, in order to address your own biases, you have to go into spaces that are uncomfortable. And um, and that's, that's, not, that's not easy. And I think part of the reason um, the inspiration I get for the books that I write is really about exploring that. So um, my, my third book, This Green and Pleasant Land, is about a Muslim family living in an English village <laughs> and quite removed from their culture and their faith until the main character, Bilal, his mother on her deathbed, asks him, because she's fearful of his soul and um, is, is scared that he's lost faith and that um, his roots, um, asks him to build a mosque in this village. And um, when she dies, he ends up trying to um, fulfill her wish in honour of his mother, even though he thinks it's a ridiculous idea. Anyway, it ends up becoming a huge thing in this small village, this small um, community. And one of the antagonists, uh, a white woman who's in her 60s, Shelley Hawking, becomes a sort of leader of the anti-mosque movement, I guess, in this. You, you see I'm fond of movements. <laughs> and it required, it required me to get into the mindset of what it would be for a white woman of a completely different generation to mine um, if someone wanted to build a mosque in her dear village in which she's lived her entire life. And it was about unpicking why it might be 
and where she's coming from and also hopefully writing it in a way that she doesn't come out as you know out and out racist um but really trying to understand how how difficult it would be for someone like that to navigate such a huge thing well that's the thing you see what you've said is very much about unconscious biases rather than racism yes. because when yes. we talk about people being racist there you know um it's also because they're feeling insecure their own status quo is being threatened yeah. uh, or challenged they have been so comfortable in a particular way like this lady in a remote white village somewhere in england uh, or it could be something else you know i've got this job and i've had this job all the time and now suddenly there's a huge influx as i'm talking 1971 of people who are south asian or descent but from east africa mm-hmm. where when idi amin throws them all out and they all arrive here yeah. from uganda and they try and get jobs and they're very hard working people yeah. but then if someone's been here who's a white english person who's got a job they want they suddenly worried that these people will come and take my job or my son's job or my daughter's job mm-hmm. and then they feel threatened mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. when they feel threatened they react so that's yeah. their story rather than saying i don't like you because you're brown or black or muslim or whatever mm-hmm. it might be mm-hmm. it's about actually acknowledging why we feel threatened what is it about us that make me feel uncomfortable and why am i why am i behaving the way i am but you're right it's a it's something that's hard to do and extremely brave it's it's hard and it's also um sort of it it sort of feeds into the idea that one and i'm i'm being very sort of um black and white about this um but it feeds into the idea that one community has to be more accommodating for the other community because they feel really uncomfortable and so it sort of feeds into the idea of so so whose rights trump another's rights you know and how do we how do we navigate these different stories and these different experiences so that we can come to a sort of a, a space in which um both parties are comfortable you know what what do we do there hmm. but what do you do Aisha on a, on a sort of a daily level uh, in terms of challenging your own unconscious biases I um I don't I mean I think that sometimes I am told by friends that perhaps what you've said there wasn't necessarily something that you should have said in public and I'm forced to sort of sit with it and acknowledge that actually um yeah that I I probably shouldn't have said something like that and um and I'll give you an example that actually just happened um over the weekend one of my best friends and um i went to a birthday dinner with a couple of other friends and um this person whose birthday party it was i, I don't actually know her very well anyway there was someone there who's telling a story because he drives an ambulance and um he was telling us how um someone phoned for an ambulance um for themselves um and when she got when the ambulance arrived you know it transpired that actually there were two or three other people in the house who could have driven her to the hospital um her husband and um a son or something and um if i remember correctly um what she said was i called the ambulance because i didn't i didn't want to wait i didn't want to disturb them i didn't want to wake them up 
and um and it kind of just came out of my mouth and I was just like was she brown and he said yes she was and my friend just gave me daggers she was that's like, your unconscious bias Aisha yes classic classic <laughs> and she looked daggers at me she said I love you but everything you've just said is so problematic oops whoops how funny and I wasn't I'm happy to announce I wasn't visualizing those brown people <laughs> oh god it was just that is so funny, but that's such a such a classic unconscious bias story that you've just shared. But the, but but that goes to show. No, but it goes to show that it'll continue all the time, won't it? We're just human beings. Yeah, we're human beings. But I mean, that's one of the times that you know my friend might not have said something. I mean, she might have said something. She would have said, but if my friend wasn't there, someone might not have said something to me, but she was there. So she did say something and this really pisses her off about me quite regularly because I, I clearly do it quite often in front of her, especially. She's and a good friend. She's great. She's one of the best. Um, and um, yeah, it kind of, it, because, you know, when someone, when someone says to you, you have said something wrong, human nature is to get defensive. You know, because no one wants to be wrong, do they? No one, everyone wants to feel like they are. Everyone wants to feel like they're a good human being. They don't have prejudices and um, they don't think negatively about certain groups. But I think um, that's, uh, I think, um, unfortunately, that's just entirely untrue. And also it's a dangerous place to be because we all have our unconscious biases. Um, even the most... Um, even the most thoughtful person, I think, has their unconscious bias because we are, we're, like you say, we're human and we're prone to we're prone to making these mistakes. And so, as a result of what she had said to me, I did think, oh yeah, I do, I do, I do a bit, I do give a dick at brown people quite often. Maybe because I think I also have the right to because I'm brown. Exactly, right? I was about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> But how, You're does, so right. how does this mm. feed into social scenarios? You know, those people, half of whom I didn't really know, they're going to go away. Um, the ones who weren't brown, who were white, are going to go away. And I've, I've possibly, potentially perpetuated these biases. Exactly, what you were saying earlier on in your books, <laughs> that you mustn't perpetuate these yes, biases. But you did in a social occasion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a much better human being in my writing than I am in person. I <laughs> no, but it's all about reflection, as you correctly said, isn't yeah. it? And it's about being honest with yourself. So, and that's what we all have to do. So, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you, Aisha, that it is about stopping thinking, not constantly running. Yeah, um, constantly running. And just reflect, exactly. Give ourselves time. So true. Yeah, give us, and we also have to be, you know, it's about having people around you also hold you accountable for what you say. Um, but it's also um, the manner in which that accountability is delivered. And the trust you have in that person. And the trust you have in that person. And if it's someone that you don't know, then, and they want to bring it up, then then it's up to that person to um, deliver it in a way that the person who's in the wrong um, or who's maybe made a bit of a faux pas, um, it's delivered with sort of insight and um, understanding so that the other person doesn't get defensive. But, you know, this is, this is a real piece of, this is, a, this is hard work. 
because it also means that you have to be incredibly patient with yourself and with others. But it's necessary. And I and I love that you've said that. It's difficult, but we all have to keep at it. It's so necessary. Um, and it's, yeah, and it's good to have people in your life who are able to pull you up on that kind of stuff. It's yes, so call, out, call out to your friend. Thank you. Exactly. Thank you, Saifatishti. <laughs> we need more friends like that. Aisha, Aisha Malik, thank you so very much for sharing your stories of unconscious bias with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Stories Seldom Told. I am Smitha Tharoor. It is you, the listener, that makes this podcast what it is. If you like this podcast, please do share. If any of you anywhere in the world feel that you have stories to share, please do connect with me on social media, at Smitha Tharoor, on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or on my company page, Tharoor Associates, on Facebook. We will be back next week.